Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to Sure. 396, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Did you miss me? Yes, we've had two weeks off, two weeks soon ourselves. Jeremy, our assistant editor, has been over there in the United States there, smoozing around there all over the place, trying to, you know, do some nice things. And it sounds like he's had a whale of a time. We went down to the little town of Chester in the UK, for a week, and then we went over to the Lake District for a week as well. Total relaxation. And well, it was actually wasn't Lake District. We were kind of climbing fells, yeah. So I've kind of popped me cherry with that. Ill Bell. If anyone wants to check that out, we we climbed. I think the first one was York, then Ill Bell, and then a one after it. It's all part of this kind of little Wainwright horseshoe. Kate, I forget which which village it was, but. My God, bloody high. <laughs> well, high, you know, high for UK standards anyways. So yes, that was the first time. And I used to live in the Lake District when I was a kid, you know. <gasps> many, many moons ago, my mum and my dad, they had like a little Lakeland pub over there until I burnt it down. <laughs> I kid you not, I burnt that pub down to the ground. It's now some flats. There was a dodgy wiring and I kind of put the switch on in, in, the, in one of the rooms and a bull blue, and there was tins of paint on the floor. And before I was only about ten or something, I mean, I remember mum and dad working down. It was just when I don't know if anyone remembers bar meals came out. You know, like in a basket, meals in a basket, like chicken and chips in a basket. And we were doing a roaring trade with that. And I remember running into the pub, into the kind of the bar, and my dad scowling at us like it was about probably about ten o'clock at night. You know, what's he doing in here? You know, chuck our block. And then I can just remember fire engines, you know, when we were all outside. And then I remember having to move back to the northeast of England. Hey, where's this going? This is going nowhere. I'll tell you what's coming today, sure. First up is we have a little story by the great Peter F. Hamilton. Then our assistant editor, Jeremy Sal, has no other than an interview with Joe Abercrombie. Yes, how cool is that? So that is all on today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget, though, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, who can now supply hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the Criminal Justice Secure email. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. And I know Clive is a keen walker as well, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of hoping he might be impressed by Yale Bell. <laughs> 
<laughs> just be he'd be putting his hands over his nose, you know, like kind of touching the brow of your nose, and like Tony, Tony, Tony. It's <laughs> just a tiny one. <laughs> So first up is a story by Peter F. Hamilton. And if you didn't know, I will give you a little bio. Peter F. Hamilton was born in Rutland in 1960 and he still lives in that county. He began writing in 1987 and sold his first short story to Fear magazine in 1988. And I'll put money on it. That magazine is in my loft because I was getting them when I came out. He has written many best-selling novels, including the Greg Mandel series, Night's Dawn Trilogy, The Commonwealth Saga, The Void Trilogy, and two short story collections, and several standalone novels. Now, when you just say it like that, you know, you just kind of rattle them off your tongue there. There is some wordage there. Don't you? Oh, is there not? This story was originally published in the Solaris book of new science fiction as well, just to give you a heads up. Now, this story is narrated by Ricky Lacoste. And I'll give you a little heads up about Ricky as well. He got in touch with what It sounds like a fine gentleman. Ricky wears a variety of hats, caps, berries, and on occasion, a bonnet or two. In reverence to audio narration and podcasting, he's a regular reader for Pseudopod and the recently produced, narrated, and wrote music for an episode of Cast of Wonders, on which, on which he will audio produce from now on. Go on there, sir, Ricky. His 13-year-old daughter... Isis Lacoste has also credits in Pseudopod and Cast of Wonders. He was also the creator and co-host of the quirky podcast called Capfono's Internet Radio, which is presently in cryogenic suspension. He is also an environmental activist, having worked with Greenpeace for Canada, communication steward for Alvenheim Valley Echo Resort. Ricky says among his ambitions he wants to accomplish in his life is perhaps... Chief of them is to have Tony C. Smith collapsing his signature speech raising chuckles during the reading of perhaps a long-winded bio. Once he has achieved this goal, his life would be complete. Ricky, you're a star. Nice, nice to get to know you, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. If at First, by Peter F. Hamilton, narrated by Ricky Lacoste. My name is David Lanson. And I was with the Metropolitan Police for 27 years. When we got handed the Jensen case, I was a chief detective, heading up my own team. Not bad going. From outside, you'd think I was a standard careerist ticking off the days until retirement. You'd be wrong. I'd grown to hate the job with a passion. Back when I signed on, the CID were real thief takers. But by the time the Jensen case came up, I was spending all my time filling in risk assessment forms. I'm not kidding. The paperwork was beyond parody. All good stuff for lawyers, but we were getting hammered by the press for truly dismal crime statistics and hammered by the politicians for not meeting their stupid targets. No wonder confidence in us had reached rock bottom. The only useful thing we did for the average citizen by then was to hand out official crime numbers for insurance claims. I suppose that makes me sound bitter, but that seems to be the fate of old men who are stuck in a job that's forever modernising. The point of all this being, despite drowning in all that bureaucratic stupidity, I reckon I was quite a decent policeman. That is, I know when people are lying. 
In those 27 years, I'd heard it all. And I do mean all. Desperate types who've made a mistake and then start sprouting bollocks to cover themselves. The genuine nutters who live in their own little world and believe every word they're saying. Drunks and potheads trying to act sober. Losers with pitiful excuses. Real sick ones who are so cold and polite it makes my skin crawl. Listening to all that day in and day out, you soon learn to tell what's real and what isn't. So, anyway, we get the call from Marcus Althew's solicitor. That is, security people are holding an intruder at his Richmond Research Centre, and they'd appreciate a full investigation of the situation. That was in 2007. And Orthew was a media computer mogul then. At least, that was the public perception. It wasn't until later I found out just how wide his commercial and technological interests were. His primary hardware company, Orthanix, had just started producing solid-state blocks that were generations ahead of anything the opposition were doing. They didn't have hard drives or individual components. The entire computer was wrapped up inside a single hydroprocessor. It wiped the floor with PCs and Apple Macs. He was always ahead of the game, Orthu. It was his original PCWs that blew Sinclair computers away at the start of the 80s. Everyone in my generation went and bought an Orthanix PCW as their first computer. But this break-in, I thought it was slightly odd the solicitor called me rather than the company's security office. Like I said, the longer you're in the game, you develop a feeling for these things. I took Paul Matthews and Carmen Galloway with me. They were lieutenants in my team, good people, and slightly less bothered about all the paperwork flooding our office than me. Smart move, I guess. They'd probably make it further than I was ever destined to go. Authentic security were holding on to Toby Jensen. They'd found him breaking in to one of the Richmond Centre Labs, which the CCTV footage confirmed. And I was right. There was more to it. We read Toby Jensen in his rights, and Uniform Division hauled him off. That was when the solicitor told me he was a stalker, a 24-carat obsessive. Marcus Orthu had known about him for years. Jensen had been following him around the globe, hacking into Orthu's systems, talking to people in his organisation, on his domestic staff, ex-girlfriends, basically anyone who crossed his path. But they hadn't been able to do anything about him. Jensen was smart. There was never any activity they could take into court for. They never got physically close. All he did was talk to people. The hacking could never be proved in law. The Richmond break-in challenged all that. As it was Orthew making the allegations, my boss told me to give it complete priority. I guess she was scared about what his magazines and satellite channels would do to the Met if we let it slide. I went out to Jensen's house with Paul and Carmen. Jesus, you should have seen the bloody place. I mean, it was out of a Hollywood serial killer film. Every room was filled with stuff on Orthu. Thousands of pictures taken all over the world. Company press releases dating back decades. Filing cabinets full of newspaper clippings, articles, every whisper of gossip, records of his movements... Maps with his houses and factories on. Copies of his magazines. Tapes of interviews which Jensen had made. 
City Financial reports on the company. <laughs> it was a cross between a shrine and a Marcus Orthew museum. It spooked the hell out of me. No doubt about it. Jensen was totally fixated on Orthew. Forensics had to hire a removal lorry to clear the place out. I interviewed Jensen the next day. That was when it started to get really weird. I'll tell you as straight as I can remember, which is pretty much verbatim. I'm never ever going to forget that afternoon. First off, he wasn't upset that he'd been caught. More like resigned. Almost like a Premier League footballer who's lost the final cup. You know, it's a blow, but life goes on. The first thing he said was... I should have realised. Marcus Orthu is a genius. He was bound to catch me out. Which is kind of ironic, really, isn't it? So I asked him what exactly he thought he'd been caught out doing. Get this, he said. I was trying to find out where he was building his time machine. Paul and Carmen just laughed at him. To them, it was a sectioning case, pure and simple. Walk the poor bloke past the station doctor, get the certificate signed, lock him up in the padded room and supply him with good drugs for the next 30 years. I thought more or less the same thing too. We wouldn't even need to go to trial. But we were recording the interview and all his delusions would help coax a signature out of a doc. So I asked him what made him think Orthu was building a time machine. Jensen said they went to school together. That's how he knew. Now, the thing is, I checked this later. And they actually did go to the same boarding school in Lincolnshire. Well, that's fair enough. Obsessions can start very early. Grudges, too. Maybe some fight over a bar of chocolate spiralled out of control. And it had been festering in Jensen's mind ever since. Jensen claimed otherwise. Marcus Ortho was the coolest kid in school apparently. Didn't surprise me from what I'd seen of him in interviews over the years. He was one of the most urbane men on the planet. Women found that very attractive. You didn't have to look through Jensen's press cuttings to know that. Orthew's girlfriends were legendary. Even the broadsheets reported them. So, how on earth did Jensen decide that the coolest kid in school had evolved into someone building a time machine? It's simple, he told us earnestly. When I was at school, I got a cassette recorder for my 12th birthday. I was really pleased with it. Nobody else had one. Marcus saw it and just laughed. He snatched one of the cassettes off me, a C90, I, I remember, and he said, State of the art, huh? Damn, that's almost the same size as an iPod. Which didn't make a lot of sense to me. Paul and Carmen had given up by then, bored, waiting for me to wrap it up. So, I prompted. So, Jensen said patiently, this was 1972. Cassettes were state-of-the-art then. At the same time, I thought it was odd that iPod was some foreign word. Marcus was already fluent in three languages. He'd throw stuff like that to you every now and then. All part of his laid-back image... It was one of those things that lingers in your mind. There was other stuff, too. The, the way he kept smiling every time Margaret Thatcher was on TV, like, like he knew something we didn't. 
When I asked him about it, he just said, one day you'll see the joke. I've got a good memory, detective. Very good. All those little details kept adding up over the years. But it was the iPod which finally clinched it for me. How in God's name could he know about iPods back in 72? Now I understand, I told him. Time machine. (laughs) Jensen gave me this look, like he was pitying me. But Marcus was 12, just like me, he said. We'd been at prep school together since we were eight. And he already possessed the kind of suavity men don't normally get until they're over 30. Damn it, he even unnerved the teachers. So, how did an eight-year-old get to go time-traveling? That was in 1967. NASA hadn't even reached the moon then. We'd only just got transistors. Nobody in 67 could build a time machine. But that's the thing with time machines, I told him. They travel from the future. I knew I'd get stick from Paul and Carmen for that one, but I couldn't help it. Something about Jensen's attitude was bothering me. That old policeman's instinct. He didn't present himself as delusional. Okay, that's not a professional shrink's opinion, but I knew what I was seeing. Jensen was an ordinary nerdish programmer. A self-employed contractor working from home. More recently from his laptop as he chased Orthu around the world. Something was powering this obsession. The more I heard, the more I wanted to get to the root of it. Exactly. Jensen said. His expression changed to tentative suspicion as he gazed at me. At first, I thought an older Marcus had come back in time and given his young self a 2010 encyclopedia. It's the classic solution, after all, even though it completely violates casuality. But knowledge alone can't explain Marcus's attitude. Something changed an ordinary little boy into a charismatic, confident, wise 50-year-old trapped in an 8-year-old body. And you worked out the answer, I guessed. Jensen produced a secretive smile. Information, he said. That's how he does it. That's how he's always done it. This is how it must have been first time round. Marcus grows up naturally and becomes a quantum theorist, a cosmologist, whatever. He's a genius, we know that. We also know you can't send mass back through time. Wormhole theory disallows it. You can't open a rift through time big enough to take an atom back a split second. The amount of energy to do that simply doesn't exist in the universe. So Marcus must have worked out how to send raw information instead, something that has zero mass. Do you see? He sent his own mind back to the 60s. All his memories... All his knowledge packed up and delivered to his earlier self. No wonder his confidence was off the scale. I had to send Paul out then. He couldn't stop laughing, which drew a hurt pout from Jensen. Carmen stayed, though she was grinning broadly. Jensen beat any of the current sitcoms on TV for chuckles. All right, then, I said. So, Orthu sent his grown-up memory back to his kid self. And you're trying to find the machine that does it. Why is that, Toby? (laughs) Are you kidding? He grunted. I want to go back myself. (laughs) Seems reasonable, I admitted. 
Is that why you broke into the Richmond lab? Richmond was one of two possibilities, he said. I've been monitoring the kind of equipment he's been buying for the last few years. After all, he's approaching 50. What's the relevance of that? Carmen interjected. He's a bloke, Jensen said. You must have read the gossip about him and the girls. There have been hundreds. Models, actresses, society types. That always happens with rich men, she told him. You can't base an allegation on that, especially not the one you're making. Yes, but for the first time round, he was just a physicist, Jensen said. There's no glamour or money in that. Now, though, he knows how to build every post-2000 consumer item at age eight. He can't not be a billionaire. This time round, he was worth a hundred million by the time he was twenty. With that kind of money, you can do anything you want. And I think I know what that is. You only have to look at his genetics division. His electronics are well in advance of anything else on the planet, but what his labs are accomplishing with DNA sequencing and stem cell research are phenomenal. They have to have started with a baseline of knowledge decades ahead of anybody else. Next time he goes back, he'll introduce the techniques he's developed, this time round, into the 1970s. We'll probably have rejuvenation by 1990. Think what that'll make him. A time-travelling immortal. I'm not going to miss out on that if I can help it. I don't get it, I told him. If Orthew goes back and gives us all immortality in the 90s, you'll be part of it. We all will. <laughs> Why go to these criminal lengths? I don't know if it is time travel, Jensen said forlornly. Not actual travelling backwards. I still don't see how that gets around casualty. It's more likely he kicks sideways. I, um, I don't get that, I said. What do you mean? A parallel universe, Jensen explained. Almost identical to this one, generating the wormhole might actually allow for total information transfer. The act of opening it creates a Xerox copy of this universe, as it was in 1967, maybe. I'm not certain what theory his machine is based on, and he certainly isn't telling anyone. I looked at Carmen. She just shrugged. Okay. Thank you for your statement, I told Jensen. We'll talk again later. You don't believe me, he accused me. Obviously, we'll have to run some checks, I replied. Tape 83-7B, he growled at me. That's your proof. And if it isn't at the Richmond Centre, then he's building it at Ealing. Check there if you want the truth. Which I did. Not immediately. While Carmen and Paul sorted out Jensen's next interview with the criminal psychologist, I went down to Forensic. They found the videotape labelled 83-7B for me, which had a big red star on the label. It was the recording of a kid's show from 83, Saturday Breakfast with Bernie. Marcus Orthu was on it to promote his Nanox computer, which would tied in to a national school computer learning syllabus for which Authentics had just won the contract. 
It was the usual zany rubbish, with minor celebrities being dunked in blue and purple goo at the end of their slot. Marcus Olthu played along like a good sport. But it was what happened when he came out from under the dripping nozzle, which sent a shiver down my spine. Wiping the goo off his face, he grinned and said, That's got to be the start of reality TV. In 1983? It was Orthu's satellite channel, which inflicted Big Brother on us in 1995. Toby Jensen's computer contained a vast section on the Orthanix Ealing facility. Eight months ago, it had taken delivery of 12 specialist cryogenic superconductor cells. The power rating was higher than the ones used by Boeing's shiny new Electro Ramjet spaceline. I spent a day thinking about it, while the interview with Toby Jensen played over and over in my mind. In the end, it was my gut police instinct I went with. Toby Jensen had convinced me. I put my whole so-called career on the line and applied for a warrant. I figured out later that was where I went wrong. Guess which company supplied and maintained the home office IT system? The request must have triggered Red Rockets in Orthu's house. According to the security guards at the gate, Marcus Orthu arrived 12 minutes before us. Toby Jensen had thoughtfully indicated in his files the section he believed most suitable to be used for the construction of a time machine. He was right, and I'd been right about him. The machine was like the core of a CERN accelerator and a warehouse packed full of high-energy physics equipment. Right at the centre, with all the fat wires and conduits and ducts focusing on it, was a dark spherical chamber with a single oval opening. The noise screeching out from the hardware set my teeth on edge. Paul and Carmen clamped their hands over their ears. Then Carmen pointed and screamed. I saw a giant brick of plastic explosive strapped to an electronics cabinet. Now I knew what to look for. I saw others. Some were sitting on the superconductor cells. So, that's what it's like being caught inside an atom bomb. Marcus Orthu was standing inside the central chamber. Sort of. He was becoming translucent. I yelled at the others to get out. And I ran for the chamber. I reached it as he faded from sight. Then I was inside. My memories started to unwind, playing back my life very fast. I only recognized tiny sections amid the blur of color and emotion. The high-speed chase that nearly killed me, the birth of my son, dad's funeral, church where I got married, university... Then the playback started to slow, and I remembered that day when I was about 11, in the park, when Kenny Maddox, our local bully, sat on my chest and made me eat the grass cuttings. I spluttered as the soggy mass was pushed down past my teeth, crying out in shock and fear. Kenny laughed and stuffed some more grass in. I gagged and started to puke violently. Then he was scrambling off in disgust. I lay there for a while, getting my breath back and spitting out grass. I was 11 years old, and 
It was 1968. It wasn't the way I'd chose to arrive in the past, but in a few months, Neil Armstrong would set foot on the moon. Then the Beatles would break up. What I should have done, of course, was patented something. But what? I wasn't a scientist or even an engineer. I can't tell you the chemical formula for Viagra. I didn't know the mechanical details of an airbag. There were everyday things I knew about. Icons that we can't survive without. The kind which rake in millions. But would you like to try selling a venture capitalist idea of Lara Croft five years before the first pocket calculator hits the shops? <laughs> I did that. I was actually banned from some of the banks in the city. So I fell back on the easiest thing in the world. I became a singer-songwriter. <laughs> Songs are ridiculously easy to remember, even if you can't recall the exact lyrics. Remember my first big hit in 78, Shiny Happy People? I always was a big R.E.M. fan. You've never heard of them? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, sometimes I wonder what the band members are doing this time around. Pretty in Pink, Teenage Kicks, The Unforgettable Fire, Salisbury Hill. They're all the same. That fabulous over of mine isn't quite as original as I make out. And I'm afraid... Live Aid wasn't actually the flash of inspiration I always said either. But the music biz has given me a bloody good life. Every album I've released has been number one on both sides of the Atlantic. That brings in money. A lot of money. It also attracts girls. I mean, I never really believed the talk about backstage excess in the time I had before. But trust me here public never gets to hear the half of it. I thought it was the perfect cover. I've been employing private agencies to keep an eye on Marcus Orthu since the mid-70s. Several of his senior management team are actually on my payroll. Hell, I even bought shares in Orthogene. I knew it was going to make money, though I didn't expect quite so much money. I can afford to do whatever the hell I want. And... The beauty of that is nobody pays any attention to rock stars or how we blow our cash. Everyone thinks we're talentless, junked-up kids heading for a fall. That's what you think has happened now, isn't it? <laughs> the fall. Well, you're wrong about that. See, I made exactly the same mistake as poor old Toby Jensen. I underestimated Marcus. I didn't think it through. My music made ripples. Big ripples. Everyone knows me. I'm famous right across the globe as a one-off super talent. There's only one other person in this time who knows those songs aren't original. Marcus. He knew I came after him. And he hasn't quite cracked the rejuvenation treatment yet. It's time for him to move on. To make his fresh start again in another parallel universe. That's why he framed me. Next time round, 
He's going to become our God. It's not something he's going to share with anyone else. I looked around the interview room, which had an identical layout to the grubby cube just down the hall where I interviewed Toby Jensen last time around. Paul Matthews and Carmen Galloway were giving me blank-faced looks, buttoning back their anger at being dragged into the statement. I couldn't quite get used to Paul with full head of hair, but Orthogene's follicle treatment is a big earner for the company. Everyone in this universe uses it. I tried to bring my hands up to them, an emphasis to the appeal I was making, but the handcuffs were chained to the table. I glanced down as the metal pulled at my wrists. After the samples had been taken, the forensic team had washed the blood off my hands, but I couldn't forget it. There'd been so much. The image was actually stronger than the one I kept of Toby Jensen. Yet I'd never seen those girls until... until I woke up to find their bodies in the hotel bed with me. The paramedics didn't even try to revive them. Please, I implored. Paul, Carmen, you have to believe me. And I couldn't even say, for old time's sake... There you go, don't forget, copyright is Peter F. Hamilton's. Big thank you, Peter, for that. Let him have that story. And Ricky, what a great narration. Thank you so much. Marvellous story. Fan fantastic. So next up, like I say, we have our very own assistant editor, Mr. Jeremy Sal, interviewing the one, the only, Joe Abercrombie. It's Jeremy, your assistant editor again, and today I've got an incredibly special guest on, one that I'm proud to have the privilege of interviewing. New York Times bestselling author Jabra Crombie is a British-born author of the Blood-Soaked First Law Trilogy, the first novel The Blade itself being unleashed on the common people in 2006, described as fantasy with the edges left on. It has since been adapted into a comic series. Set in the same world of the three standalone novels, Revenge Spatterpunk Best Served Cold, the Western Red Country, and the most unheroic war fantasy novel ever written, The Heroes. In an attempt to exploit the market and rake in even more cash so he can afford his toilet seat car from a single diamond, his latest endeavor has been uh, the, his latest endeavor is the young adult Scandinavian flavored uh, Shattered Seas trilogy, appealing to younger readers but still retaining his trademark cynicism and people stabbing each other with pointy objects. Take that as you will. He is the Witch King of Nihilism and the Lord of Grimdark and all that is unholy. Joe Crombie, thank you so much for coming to Starship Sofa. It is a delight to be here. Yeah. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm not sure I have anything to add. I uh, can just leave now. <laughs> Satisfied. Anyway, we will ask you, though, since most of these common peasants haven't had the privilege of being uh, graced by the esteemed and epic fantasy genre that you write in, would you like to explain they to... They ought to be pitied... Yeah. That's not hated, Jeremy. Pitied, pitied. Pitied. Feel sympathy for them. But please relieve them of this ignorance. Tell them what you write. Well, I, uh, I started out writing, um, I suppose, very adult fantasy. Uh, big, complicated, uh, long, violent, gritty fantasy books. I guess uh, someone in the style of George R.R. R. Martin, who people have not widely heard of when I started using that comparison, but has become... 
pretty obvious these days, I think, with the success of Game of Thrones. So um, that's what I wrote to begin with. More recently, I've written um, three uh, much more uh, tightly focused, shorter, sharper, quicker books. The idea was really to write, um, I suppose, fantasy with a kind of thriller pace uh, and potentially to reach a, a slightly younger audience, but also... I guess maybe a wider adult audience who are, who are interested in the idea of fantasy but don't you know, necessarily like tackling these huge series of huge books that you sometimes get in fantasy, mm. written by me and others. Mm. So, yeah, Half a King and its sequels are, are these shorter, tighter, more focused books, I guess you could say. Mm. It can be a little endearing just walking up to the shelf and uh, seeing a big fat fantasy that's a quarter of a million words long just for a person who wants to get into fantasies used to reading uh, shorter shorter fiction and just seeing this massive absolute doorstopper of a novel to just uh, dive headfirst in but when i first started reading your books the first thing i noticed was how unique they were like every character had a different voice it was dark and humorous and it subverted quite a number of fantasy uh, tropes conventions that we've known to have the genre, have uh, the genre is known for having and look, one of your main characters is a torturer, and you should hate him, but yet he's the most loved out of uh, all the trilogy. Was this deliberate, or did it just pour out as you wrote? I think uh, it's easy in hindsight to make up an extravagant, clever, and complicated story about what you had in mind and what you were planning. You'll read a lot of people, well, hopefully you will, read people talking about your books and they will have all kinds of theories about what you were aiming to do. And over time, you can start believing a lot of that and taking it perhaps a bit too seriously, taking your own myth a bit too seriously. I think really when I I started writing, I did what any writer does, which is to just write the kind of book they want to read, I think. Write the kind of book that perhaps they have felt wasn't out there, that they hadn't read enough of. Mm. For me, I'd read a lot of fantasy growing up, a lot of the uh, the 80s boom in fantasy, commercial, pulpy stuff, you know, obviously Tolkien when I was a kid, but then uh, the guys who had picked up the baton from Tolkien, if you like, a lot of shiny heroes and relatively predictable triumphs of good over evil and that kind of thing. And I suppose I just felt the lack of the the tough, modern unpredictable edge that you might find in some of the thrillers and westerns that I was reading and wondered why no one was really applying that to fantasy and then obviously I read Game of Thrones back in the 90s and and, and found a lot of what I felt had been missing in terms of shock value grittiness focus on the characters instead of the setting I found that stuff expressed in Game of Thrones and thought oh well you can do this and still write something that's very recognisably core epic fantasy with all that that scale and grandeur and kind of mystery that you really want from the genre, you know, and, and a lot of the the thing expressed in a new way. So that was really the big inspiration for me, along with a lot of other more general fiction and thrillers and things that I'd read to have a stab at writing, you know, a, a fantasy book myself. And, and really a lot of it was just what naturally developed when I started trying to write. Um, I think... Because I had seen the same thing done a lot, I'd seen a lot of farm boys with special destinies and goodly wizards with the the best interests of the world at heart fighting a kind of a dark lord whose motives could not be understood. Because I'd seen all those things so much, I kind of felt as though I wanted to do the reverse a lot. And so I think the first law ended up very uh, 
you know, dirty, gritty, uh, violent, and uh, quite cynical and dark, really because it was the... I felt the need to put something on the other side of the scales from what I felt was out there at the time. I mean, I'm not sure that's so much the case. There's obviously been a lot more of that kind of work out there since. So um, it's important not to get stuck into a rut of doing the same thing over and over. I don't think you'd want to be predictable for being, you know, shocking, violent and gritty mm. any more than you'd want to be predictable for being shiny, clean and heroic. So uh, you keep trying to do new things with each book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like uh, talking about balancing the st- scales, it can be difficult really because essentially what it is is just, uh, if I may use this analogy of authors, uh, one by one coming and placing their own brick uh, on the house, just gradually over the years, building it up until until today we've got uh, A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones that sells uh, by the bucket loads. And it might not have back in the 60s. Uh, it might not have been published in the 60s at all. It's all a gradual, and it's safe to say that a lot of authors working today, like Mark Lawrence and uh, Richard K. Morgan, might not have been able to publish the books if it wasn't for the likes of Glenn Cook and George R. R. Martin putting those first bricks uh, on the foundation. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, no doubt. I mean, any genre is, a, as you say, a, a steady development, mm. um, and occasionally kind of milestone authors will appear with a very different approach, a very different take on things that will push a genre in a slightly different direction. There's still, I think, a lot of the the more you know heroic, cleaner, uh, very Tolkien-influenced type work out there. There's still plenty of that there, I think. Uh, there's still plenty of that being published. It's not what's getting the huge attention so much of late. But then, you know, the writers like, uh, I guess, uh, Brandon Sanderson, you know, is a good example. Hugely, hugely successful writer. And he's, you know, not writing really gritty, dark, filthy stuff in the, in the Martin mode, I wouldn't say. So I think there's a great, you know, it's a good time to be a fantasy writer. This, it feels as though there's a lot of variety out there for readers. It feels as though there are people trying different different takes, a lot more variety than there was maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, uh, when the genre, to me, felt quite predictable, quite narrow, quite, you know, stayed in a way, quite stagnant perhaps. Um, whereas now it feels like there are a lot of different approaches and I think that's just got to be a healthy thing for readers, a healthy thing for writers as well, in a way, because there's just a wider pool of influences to draw on. And as you say, the market is a little bit more um, receptive to to different ideas, darker ideas and, and lighter ones too, I think. Mm, it's good to have a diverse range to uh, pick from, something, of, uh, something for all fo- uh, types of folks. And one thing, another thing about your series is that some of your characters, such as Logan and Baez, have uh, actually proven to be unreliable narrators. And do you think that this adds to the whole complexity and moral ambiguity of the series? You've had literary fiction uh, taking the whole practice of uh, moral ambiguity and moral gravity for, for, and unreliable narrators for years, and now fantasy has picked that up and yours is uh, one of them. Do, do you think this added uh, to the what you're going for? Yeah, well, I think it's all, uh, you know... A, a a box of tricks from which you try and pick all kinds of different things and, and cook up your own recipe in a way. Um, but certainly fantasy had been quite, you know, a, a lot of epic fantasy, the most successful stuff had been, had lacked subtext perhaps, had been quite straightforward. Um, you, you tended to be presented with a heroic figure, a goodly wizard, uh, a farm boy with a special destiny, as we were saying. And quite often with those sort of books, you could look at the first 10 or 20 pages and have a pretty good idea 
where things were going to go. And rarely would you be that surprised by what slot a character ended up in. In real life, of course, we are often surprised by people, and people are very unpredictable, and their motives are very unknowable. And people are very different from the outside than they are from the inside. I mean, it's a truism to say that everyone is the hero of their own story, but obviously very few people do things thinking, I'm going to do a really evil thing today. They do things with a very different conception of good than other people have. They do things working for the greater good. They do things because they think they're necessary evils. So I think there is, to a degree, something realistic about characters that are unreliable narrators, characters that seem very different from the outside, and characters who are very mixed in their motives and who are you know, neither heroic nor villains necessarily, but are somewhere in between or are both or are capable of either given the circumstance. I think there are, you know, very few people who are either entirely villainous or entirely heroic in every circumstance and uh, every time, but we're all capable of something, you know, noble, something self-sacrificing under the right circumstances. So to me, you know, that kind of world, those kind of characters are, you know, truthful. They feel believable. Um, and I think people respond, you know, readers respond to those kind of characters well, provided they feel like they're true and honest. Mm. Because we are, it realistically, we are reading about fantasy and science fiction worlds that don't exist and can't exist. But we buy into, we don't buy into worlds, we buy into characters, we buy into people. And to understand that characters can have the same nuance and complexity as, as our as us. It adds, it adds a whole level of uh, realism as opposed to just reading about the glorious knight who uh, his optimism, unwavering optimism, unwavering good, beacon of light. It At the end of the day, it's not what we're after. We're after people who... We, we're after characters who we can see ourselves in and doing things that we may or may not agree with given the circumstances. But, okay... Absolutely. Uh, I, think that, I think, you know, um, you, you, there's certainly a place for those sort of stories and those hmm. sort of characters. It just things become uh, kind of uh, much less interesting when we know exactly what to expect. You know, I want to be shocked and surprised by what I read generally. There's nothing I like more than to be surprised. Mm. And there's no richer ground to surprise people in than, you know, that ground where they think they know exactly what they're going to get. I think that's the the great thing about genres. Mm. You know, a Western, uh, you expect certain conventions. And when you see certain characters that fit into certain types, it draws certain expectations from the reader and from the audience. And that in turn gives the writer all kinds of, expectations they can play with and change and shift and so i love genres for that reason that they have patterns and they have expectations and the readers think they know what to expect yeah before you drag that all down to the mud well absolutely everything everything good ends in the filth doesn't it of course that's the way i go so speaking of filth your book's prose style is very often it's very jagged it's very stunted it's very it's very rough and flowering, your flowering poetic pose, it's, it's always praised upon. You see people in reviews talking about beautiful, lavish, fantastic prose. And as you said earlier, there's a place for that as well. But uh, people have, do you think people look down upon the sort of crude and rough style that you try to use, especially in the First Law trilogy, uh, First Law world? I certainly think uh, there's a tendency for when people talk about prose when people celebrate prose, to talk about smoothness 
and flowingness and kind of being elaborate. Um, and again, I think there can be wonderful prose that is of that type, that is very rich and chewy and, and, uh, and complex. To me, that's not always the, the kind of writing I most enjoy. Um, I think great writing is writing that suits the purpose, writing that communicates to the reader the sense of being in the situation you're writing about, the sense of being the person that you're writing from the point of view of. So to me, great writing suits the characters, suits the, suits the book, suits the action, and changes to suit the characters in the book and the action. Um, so I absolutely think there is just as much of a place for prose that is, that is jagged and rough and jarring and harsh. Uh, you know, a, a brutal action scene I don't think is necessarily served by extremely long and flowery and elaborate and flowing prose because that does not communicate the sense of being in that situation. Likewise, you know, writing from the point of view of, of an illiterate barbarian, to me it would seem strange to have that prose, or at least it's a very different experience to writing prose of the kind that reflects the thought process of that person. That's just what I try to do. That's what's always felt natural to me. And I think often, you know, really great writers, they don't write always or even often in this very flowery, complex way. Uh, you think of a writer like Gino Diaz, say, who writes very much with a, uh, a kind of, you know, a voice of the people with a, with a very simple voice, but a voice that's full of richness and, you know, really gets across a sense of the people that he's talking about. That, to me, is what great writing is. It's, mm. it's conversational, it's, it's easy to access, but it's full of depth. You know, and I think you can have something that's incredibly complicated and yet incredibly shallow, Whereas you can also have something that's extremely simple, but makes you think and is, is full of depth. So you don't need complex words, you don't need complex constructions to produce something that is, that is deep and rich and has a powerful voice. Mm. And to me, the writing I really connect with is, is writing that has this powerful voice and makes me think, you know, ha- has a, a little revelation, a little observation that makes me think, I'd never have thought that, I'd never have said that, and yet I can see it's totally true. I think that is writing that really gets to me. You can you can keep the kind of flowery, complex stuff generally, as far as I'm concerned. Mm, indeed. And so on that point, your books have been quite violent uh, as a major understatement. How have the people around you reacted to seeing some of the content in your book? <laughs> yeah, strangely, they, they, generally, I can't remember many people really saying this is surprising and a bit worrying. Um, I think we are used to seeing a lot of violence in our uh, media, on screen, in in books. You know, epic fantasy is and has always been a very violent genre. Um, Looking at Lord of the Rings as the kind of classic template, the towering example within the genre. You know, the Fellowship of the Ring are basically, apart from the Hobbits, they're warriors. I mean, even Gandalf carries a sword. They... uh, they're all experienced killers. They all kill quite a lot during the story. They kill orcs, generally, but in real life we don't have that luxury. When we kill, we have to kill other people with all their hopes and dreams and families and all those things. Um, so, you know, Aragorn is, is, a, is a warrior. Gimli and Legolas, they heap the bodies up outside Helm's Deep and they count how many they've dispatched to the afterlife. Those were people they were heaping up in, in heaps and competing over killing they would be terrifying psychopaths so I think 
there is a lot of violence in epic fantasy. The background is always war, is these great conflicts between good and evil. But we're kind of invited to look at some violence as righteous and acceptable. Um, and often violence you can walk away from without consequences, without consequences physical or emotional. In real life, people often have those consequences. So I think I was always fascinated by what I saw as the the great, you know, the way, the way it's quite disjointed, the comparison between fantasy as it appears in, uh, violence as it appears in epic fantasy and, and violence as it kind of happens in real life. Um, and I was keen to investigate that in a way. I wanted the action to feel rather than looked down on from a height um, and, you know, described quite coldly or, or in passing. Um, I wanted it to feel absolutely involving. I wanted it to feel terrifying. I wanted the, the fear and the randomness and the, the pain and the horror of uh, violence without forgetting that there is something fascinating and glamorous about violence that draws us back and that, and that grips people and that people want to see and want to be involved with. So I kind of was just fascinated by looking at you know, violence and, and uh, violent men and the consequences of violence and the costs of violence and really looking at it close up and unflinchingly, I guess. Mm, I mean, if you're... So, Sorry. I yeah. suppose I'd say, you know, the first law is not necessarily more violent than Lord of the Rings, but the way in which it's described and the, and the kind of texture of it is obviously very different, yeah. Mm. Yeah, if you're... Yeah, especially if your aim is to portray violence and you're going to go from a bird's eye view, very distant, cold... Uh, on indifferent perspective, if you're not doing anyone, uh, you're not doing anyone a, a favor unless you get down within, uh, with the grit and the grime and the blood and really portray what it's actually like when a man dies, how his screams sound and how much blood a man can hold. If your job is, if you're trying to portray that honestly, you're not going to get any favors by sweetening it up from a, a lofty perspective. And Okay, another thing about your work is that your standalones appear very largely to be homages to other genres of film and literature and best served cold really it feels like a throwback to revenge flicks like point blank and red country feels very much like a spaghetti western i honestly felt like i was watching an episode of De- uh, of deadwood reading your work without with less swear your work had less swearing in it of course and your work didn't only slightly less. yeah only slightly and your work didn't leave after three chapters uh stop after three chapters but is there any reason why you went down this path of uh, running homages yeah, well, I, ne- I needed to write some more books. It was mostly why. Um, I obviously had... Uh, um, I had the, the characters and the settings and things of, of the first one in mind for, for many years. I mean, all my life, in, in a way. Some of them went right back to childhood, but had changed and developed as I'd go older. And uh, that had been the thing I'd always had in mind, in mind to write. But obviously, when you're taken on a massive project like that, you never think past... Um, being published you know you never think past even getting to the end of the first book initially that seems impossible let alone finishing a whole thing getting it published and so I'd never thought about what I might do after that you know and then as I was writing the third book obviously my editor said to me what are you going to do next and I had this horrible epiphany that uh, you know in a career you might end up writing 20, 30, 40, 50 books or more for some writers and um, that, you know, when, when you reach that moment, I think you have to... I wasn't someone who had kind of trunkfuls of ideas in the attic or anything. 
I'm not someone who spews out basic ideas for books all the time. So I didn't have a mass of ideas waiting and uh, I needed to kind of think up some ideas relatively quickly. I wanted to work in the same world because there didn't seem to be any point in abandoning a lot of the settings and characters I'd you know, produced at that stage. So, uh, yeah, I kind of hit on the idea of doing some... Uh, I wanted to write shorter books and so I, I thought about film-based plots, really. thought about some of the films that I really liked and what made me like those films. I wanted to try and kind of... Uh, take some of those shorter, more focused plots and, and adapt them into a fantasy setting. And so, as you say, Best Earth Cold was a kind of gangster thriller, really, a revenge drama, I suppose, within a, a fantasy setting. Uh, with Point Blank, as you said, the Lee Marvin film, John Borman's Point Blank, being kind of the starting point, the inspiration for it, although there are many changes. Lee Marvin's a woman in, the, in this, as, as you'd expect, and... Um, it's set in a kind of Renaissance Italian setting, I suppose, rather than shadowy LA. But the basic idea was drawn from Point Blank, and then the heroes was the idea was a kind of big picture war epic, like um, a bridge too far, I guess, or uh, uh, Gettysburg. You know, these kind of big war films that show a single battle, show a lot of the different characters on both sides caught up within it. Um, I thought that might be a good vehicle to kind of explore some of these ideas about about violence and violent men and the nature of heroism and the way in which, you know, warfare in epic fantasy is very different from warfare in reality. And then with Red Country, yeah, it was Westerns. I've always been a huge fan of Westerns, of Sergio Leone and of, and of uh, you know, Clint Eastwood's subsequent revisionist Westerns. So this was a kind of, I suppose, lumping a whole set of Western concepts together, Lonesome Dove and Deadwood and uh, the Arnold Josie Wales, Unforgiven, a whole load of different Western ideas and, and kind of setting. Because, you know, the American West, in a way, is is a certain type of, of setting. It's a place where civilization is, is encountering the savage and the unknown and the natural uh, civilization expanding out into a kind of unconquered wilderness. You can have that frontier situation outside of America. And so it was basically trying to replicate that, that Western setting that western kind of concept and and again fit it into a, a fantasy a fantasy uh with fantasy trappings i suppose you might say though it essentially is pretty much a western so i wanted to just try out some different ideas i think it's important to not to kind of work with the same characters endlessly with the same settings endlessly to keep kind of pushing yourself trying new things because although there'll always be some readers who prefer your other stuff and your earlier stuff and will definitely be vocal about telling you that. Um, and we'll ask you, you know, when's the next Logan Nine Fingers book or when's the next Doctor book or, you know, when, when will we see Pharaoh again or, or whoever it may be. I think it's much better to have that situation where you leave people, you know, hungry, having really enjoyed what they've read, than to have a kind of situation where you drag things out for 20 or 30 books and become bored yourself and if you're bored, you can never expect your readers to be excited, mm. I think. Rather than furiously storming off, they will gradually drift away, but probably in greater numbers in the end. Mm. Uh, if you write new stuff, you can always hope to get new readers and bring new readers to your older books. And I think one thing I'm really pleased with is that there's not really a lot of agreement on which is my best book and which is my worst. You know, there'll be a lot of people who really don't like one book and who really love what another but generally they're different ones. Um, and so I think, you know, each one hopefully 
achieve something slightly different. And you also, you know, you don't improve unless you try new stuff and try new ideas. So I think it's important to always be striving to get better and to try mm. different things. Yeah, it's always good to um, get out of your comfort zone and see what else you can come up with. And you might surprise yourself. And your the standalones are vastly different. I mean, the heroes, if I recall, took place over three days, and Red Country took place over what nine months? Was it six months? It was a long time, I, I, if I recall. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is, epic fantasy generally does take place with huge casts. It's epic. It has huge casts. It has uh, huge settings immense vistas, you know, huge settings physically, but also, you know, the, the action tends to tends to span over great distances and, uh, you know, large lengths of time often as people undertake huge quests and huge world-spanning journeys and massive events. And so, yeah, with the heroes, I was kind of fascinated by the idea of, you know, an epic fantasy that took place in a very tight, limited setting, all in one valley, in effect, over the course of one three-day battle. So it's it's very focused and all the characters are in very close proximity to each other and the characters paths are crossing and recrossing all over the place in all kinds of different ways so that was quite a fascinating exercise for me making it so compact in a way Mm. um and i think you know not something i've often seen within fantasy certainly um whereas red country as you say does have that that much more traditional structure in a way of 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 a journey of a long quest um the central character sets out to find a, a kidnapped brother and sister, basically, and that that journey takes her all across the, the this newly settled, newly explored region from the relatively civilized area right out into the the completely kind of magical and mystical unknown in a way. So, yeah, very different books, as you say. Yeah, indeed. And we we spoke about this before, but uh, when people say fantasy, they usually, although of course Tolkien, he's done endless amount of good for I, mean, I doubt that any of us or you uh, what well, should I say would be working today if it wasn't for the likes of Tolkien who really put, laid those bricks down oh, sure. but one of the most cliched things about epic fantasy seems to be the ultimate evil and this evil's almost always without a motive and you have Sauron from Lord of the Rings he's not a particularly appealing bloke to follow and it's really hard to understand why anyone would pick his side we never understand him or discover why he why he does what he does or what his motives were. We never get an in-depth look into him. And by putting, in some cases, like in uh, like The First Law and some of your other books, putting us directly inside the heads of the people that we're supposed to hate or that were, were, or the char- other, some of the other characters hate, is this something you wanted to deliberately avoid, having the unmanageable, unexplainable, uh, omnipresent sort of evil? Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. As, as I was saying earlier, I, it's hard to know exactly what I was thinking when I set out because uh, I didn't really have a, a game plan that way. I just kind of started writing what seemed to make sense. Um, with later books, certainly, I was I was thinking about the big picture in that way much more. So, you know, a book like The Heroes doesn't have a it, The Heroes is about a battle, but it doesn't really have a right side or a wrong side. It doesn't particularly take that position. It kind of has all kinds of people caught up in this conflict both at the the kind of higher command level and right in the trenches you know on the ground um and so you don't really where the reader's sympathy is 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 left up to the reader in a sense and their sympathy tends to be with with individuals rather than with a side there's not a good side and an evil side i think perhaps um 
the idea of great battles of good against evil maybe seemed more uh, real, seemed more believable, seemed to suit the real world better in in the the shadow of the Second World War and when the Cold War was running. And we did maybe see the world much more in that binary way. We did tend to see the world much more as an us and a them. Um, you know, obviously the moral questions of the Second World War were, were, were pretty clear, generally. Um, and in the Cold War, that they at least felt clear. Um, I think these days, with the much greater scrutiny, the, much, the, the constant news coverage of everything, we tend to see the, the world in a much muddier sense. We're, we're much less trustful of our leaders than we used to be. We're much less trustful that we are necessarily on the right side. Um, we tend to think of other people's points of view. We tend to see the world in a relativistic way. You know, there's different conceptions of good rather than necessarily absolute good and absolute evil. I mean, some people obviously don't, you know, still still see it as absolute good and evil. But I think for many of us, you know, that doesn't seem to describe the world that we live in. And so these muddier, murkier worlds where power is corrupting, where the powerful are not always to be trusted... I think that rings true in a way that perhaps it didn't, you know, in the past. And so certainly stories that are much, much more, much muddier seem to have become much more popular. I think, you know, looking at TV, if you look at the way that, you know, say cop shows have changed, they've changed enormously over 20, 30 years. You know, we started off very much with white hats and, and black hats and goodly detectives seeking out evil criminals. And then, you know, we moved more towards... Stuff like Hill Street Blues, which is, you know, where, where it's still pretty clean cut, but you, you get more kind of grayness around the edges. And then maybe something like NYPD Blue, where, where a lot of the characters are very gray, you know, and start to become very mixed. Some of the cops are not to be trusted. They go off the rails. They, the things go wrong. And then to something like The Shield, where, you know, the characters are absolutely black, some of the, the central characters, and yet still quite fascinating for one reason or another. And, you know, understandable, understandable how a set of reasonable decisions, of even righteous decisions, has led them into really dark territory and to become pretty evil, really. Well, totally evil. Um, and so I think it's been a standard, you know, steady progression in a lot of media that we've gone from these quite clean-cut, clear, uh, good, good versus evil narratives to ones where things are much greyer. And these days, we're very much willing to kind of entertain a very grey, very dark, very anti-heroic character. Uh, and I suppose for me, when I started writing fantasy, I really wanted to produce characters that were of that vein, that mm. were, you know, interesting through their darkness, mm. in a sense. And I wanted to, you know, ask the question, what might motivate some of these villains that we see in fantasy? You know, what's it like to be on the inside of their heads? Do they feel like the heroes? Do they think they're the heroes? Do they do they think they're decent people? Do they know they're evil people? So a lot of these characters, you know, in the first floor are wrestling with those very things. Others are just self-absorbed, you know, idiots who, who don't really give too much thought to the, to the whole area. But, uh, yeah, I was certainly interested in in picking at the nature of good and evil and asking whether such things are, are possible. And I'd say you certainly succeeded. Moving oh, on. Thank you. No worries. Moving on, why did you actually decide to write Young Adult, besides the money, the fame, the eventual film adaption and the toilet seat, <laughs> diamond toilet seat? Well, I think, you know, probably the easy route to, to money and fame is to kind of 
find a rich vein and continue to mine it endlessly, in a way. I think massive long series, much though I, the, my taste doesn't necessarily run that way always, and I think there's a lot of drawbacks to them as a, as a reader, I think they, they do retain readers a lot. And, and within fantasy is the standard coin, if you like. So I think that is, in a way, the easiest thing to do would be to take successful characters and endlessly kind of, you know, work with those characters. Um, I suppose for me, I felt that I'd written these six big, complex adult books with a, you know, very gritty, dark, cynical kind of sense about them. Uh, and I just wanted to try something slightly different. You know, I wanted to try my hand at a different world. Um, a different kind of style, I suppose, and particularly a much tighter, more focused kind of book. See if you could do epic fantasy that had a sort of much tighter length and a thriller page-turning kind of pace, I suppose. Um, I'd always really admired fantasy where the world-building wasn't big and heavy and stodgy and, and dumped on you in great lumps of history. You know, stuff like The Wizard of Earthsea, Wizard of Earthsea, uh, Ursula Le Guin, which is a very slim book, but really evokes and has a fantastic atmosphere of, a, of, a, of an alien world, a much richer world in a way than many that you get in fantasy that a writer spends 20 times as many words describing. You know, she gets the essence across very quickly and effortlessly. So I've been approached a few years before about uh, writing young adult work by an editor, Harp Collins, who, who edits young adult stuff. And he read my adult stuff and thought, you know, I might be a good fit for writing young adult. Um, and so the idea had stuck with me a little while. And I was just kind of waiting for the right concept, I, I suppose, um, and just for a break in my adult work where I could start to tackle it. Um, so it was really just because of that. And it was also, I think, I'd obviously had kids myself since I started writing. And um, seeing my kids grow up and, and read stuff, you know, my, my, my oldest is eight, so seeing how she responds to Harry Potter and, you know, things of this kind that she's reading kind of reminded me how different is the experience of a child reading or a younger person reading, how, you know, huge is the impact of the stuff you read at that age, mm. how amazingly into it you get, how dominating it is. Uh in a way that even when you love as a book as an adult, I think with this cynical, more world-weary attitude that you have, books never have quite the impact they did when you were young. So I was kind of keen to write something that might have that kind of impact on on people, on younger younger readers, you know, and that hopefully would read them, you know, would lead them then through to my adult work, and they could be fully corrupted over the course of time. So so it was partly that, and it was also, I suppose, that you know commercially speaking because these considerations are always in your mind to a degree or at least mine uh, the commercial and the creative you know inform each other um, I was I, you know it, it occurred to me there might be a, a lot of adult readers out there who are kind of interested in fantasy at the moment fantasy seems very exciting and, and you know of the mode because of Game of Thrones and other things who you know adult readers who are keen to try some of this stuff but find that great length in the big series a little bit off-putting and would maybe want to try a shorter, tighter book and see whether it worked for them before moving on, you know, maybe moving on to something bigger. So it seemed like it might be a good idea and a good complement to my older stuff and that, you know, I could swap readers between the two. I certainly didn't want to write something that would be, you know, a massive turn-off to my older readers, though. I wanted it to work, you know, at least to some degree for them as well. Um, and so I think I, I wanted it... The, the, the books I really enjoyed as a, as a young adult myself... You know, as a, as a kid myself, um, I guess writers like Rosemary Sutcliffe, 
who writes historical fiction and, uh, you know, Ursula Gwynn, Wizard of Earthly, things like that. They were never simple, shiny, soft books. I mean, a lot less so than some of the commercial fantasy we've talked about. They were quite tough, dark books that put their characters through the ringer. You know, they often had the sort of prose we were talking about earlier, not incredibly clever and elaborate, but, you know, very nicely written, very atmospheric, very compact and focused. I suppose I wanted to write that kind of book, you know, a book that wouldn't talk down, because I think, you know, young adults are adults. They're just young. And the kind of book they want to read is very much like the kind of book adults want to read. It's maybe not a little less in length, a little less in in number of characters and, and, and size, but I think in terms of the challenge and the issues that it tackles, it should still, the gloves need to be off. Indeed. And yeah, again, I love your adult, uh, your adult books and your young adult books as well. But people, I think, underestimate just how powerful and just how well-written some young adults can be on the market uh, in, gen- in general. And it's looked down upon for some absurd reason. And it's really glad, great to see Sony, such as yourself, really known in the adult fantasy world, expanding into the young adult. So, but on that I'm note, always, sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, I was going to say I'm always a little bit surprised by the by the way that people kind of, especially you know, readers of fantasy very much identify with fantasy and identify themselves as fantasy fans. You know, are endlessly moaning <laughs> about how they're looked down on by the mainstream and how fantasy mm. is never given the respect it deserves. But as soon as you talk about young adult, they're immediately kind of, oh, that's all rubbish, that's all junk. I, you know, I'm not interested in that. I just find it sort of, uh, yeah, a, bit, a, a little bit disappointing in a sense. I think, you know, young adult books, they're just books. And, uh, you know, there may be bad books there and books that you don't like among them. But, you know, generally they're just books. Again, I'll often get people, you know, who tackle one of the books even though it's fantasy and I think fantasy's lame. And, you know, then they'll think, oh, that's actually pretty good even though it is fantasy. Mm. You know, and then likewise people will read you know will say oh i hadn't bothered with these because they were young adult and you know then oh i read it for and kids I'm surprised. It's, actually, it's very like your other books I'm like mm. well yes yeah, surprising that isn't it mainly because it's i'm the one who wrote it yeah. 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 yeah it's the same guys writing it it should be somewhat similar but so yeah those <laughs> in general those you hadn't have you hadn't had the best reception from from readers when they actually learned that you're writing young adult books i actually saw that unfold uh, on your blog and Twitter when it was first announced, and there was some, it was actually quite amusing just how volatile some of these people were about about their favourite author daring to try young adult out of all things. Yeah, although I mean, it didn't seem of a totally different order to um, you know the, the complaints I have whenever I write a new book. I mean, I, I think lots of people who complain best of cold. I mean, that, that it wasn't the same characters as before. And lots of people who then complained, you know, about each book that came out that it wasn't quite what they wanted or expected. Um, so I think you'll, you'll always face that unless you kind of really do very much the same thing um, and stick with the same characters. You will tend, I think, always to get a degree of that. And it, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't to me totally out of proportion. Or you know, certainly there was a little bit with Half the King, but I think uh, with the subsequent books. You know, so some people obviously have decided that they don't want to read these, and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, but um, generally, people have, have, have followed along and, and read them and, and perfectly liked them. I mean, there's many who don't like them as much as the adult ones, and there's also quite a few who do. And there's also quite a few who, have, uh, you know, these are the first book of mine they've read, and that is quite a nice thing to see because generally with the adult stuff, people start with the blade itself. 
And, you know, if they don't read that, they're not going to read the others. So it's good there's another kind of point. People can try my stuff and maybe then get into the adult books. That was always the, the plan. Mm. Also, that gave the opportunity to kind of change publishers in different territories and, you know, get, get new publishers and some new ideas, um, which I think is always quite a healthy thing, especially in the, you know, the current climate where you never know whether, you know, one of the big publishers might sooner or later topple. It's always a possibility. So having some diversity in your publishing, I think, is healthy too. Only yeah, to the paycheck, no doubt. But oh, um, yeah, indeed, but yeah. As again, as I said, I love your adult books, but with some of them, such as The Last Argument of Kings and The Heroes, it felt like one really long, intense ride. There was never a moment to catch your breath, and I love that. But young, your young adult novels, particularly Half the World, they follow a much more conventional narr- uh, p- adventure path. It felt had a much more classic feel to it. It didn't feel like there's just one uh, frantic, kinetic uh, car drive that The Last Argument of Kings for me, was like it felt much more slow, slowed down, had a much more healthy pace. And was this intentional, being able to just uh, yank the reins and just go at a steady uh, canter instead of just full speed ahead? That's a good question. I mean, I I think uh, the idea, they're obviously much shorter books. um, So the idea was really to just, uh, I suppose, just be, be tighter and simpler and more focused in a sense. Because, say, the first of all has six point of view characters and it kind of moves back and forth between them alternates between them at various different times i suppose uh half king just has the one point of view character so in a way to me it was like pulling one of those threads out from those three huge books and then just you know presenting that one thread on its own in a much more you know focused and simple kind of way uh and hence to have you know quite a page turning forward forward drive to those books to to the young adult ones that was generally the idea but I think, obviously, with something like Last Argument of Kings, you're bringing home a three-book series, so you kind of have, naturally, a, a, you know, if you planned it well, I guess, a, a sort of building pace towards a, a kind of climax at the end. So that book certainly is quite, is quite non-stop, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's a quarter of a million words, and it's just full speed ahead, from, from all angles, uh, no less. And, yeah, again, like, the Shadowed Seas trilogy differs from that. It seems to have lost that crude edge that you use, use in your work it felt almost lyrical and poetic at times especially the last book when uh, some of the characters were conversing in the uh to the room and it felt i was actually surprised uh at this like i actually spoke to a number of people and they actually said that it didn't feel like an abercrombie book they i don't know if that's the good thing or a bad thing but i was actually surprised as how different it was well, from yeah. your usual from usual forte and did you actively try and write in that format or did you just decide I'm just going to see what it turns out, or did you try to write a little less jagged, more poetic? Yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe... Um, I, I guess not making necessarily a conscious effort with every line and every paragraph kind mm. of thing, but um, certainly the idea was to write in uh, you know a different style for a different world. I mean, there's, there's not the same amount of swearing. There's a lot of swearing in the first law. There's a lot of rough crudity of that kind. There's a lot of sex and violence very explicitly and intimately described. Mm. There's almost um, none of that in the Shattered Streets. I was genuinely surprised that you managed to restrain yourself from going uh, full <laughs> R-rated yeah, gore fest. Certainly, but, you know, there is some in the Shattered Sea as well. Oh, but yeah. I, I was going, I think, quite consciously for a more, uh, you know, Viking saga-esque kind of vibe, which... Uh, you know the Vikings obviously loved a bit of toilet humour as well, so there is a bit of that in the first law in the in the Shatsi. But um, 
I think if, I, if I'd been doing exactly the same tone, there wouldn't have been much point in it as an exercise. Part of the whole idea was to write something that did differ and that had a different world and a different sensibility. I mean, I think if I'd just written young adult books set in the first law world, it would have felt very false because, you know, why have you in another corner of the world got a load of people endlessly swearing constantly and, and being generally filthy, whereas in this corner of the world, for some reason, people don't swear very much. But I think, you know, if you start from a new world, you're free to work out a new idiom, a new kind of way that people express themselves, and it doesn't feel quite so kind of forced. Um, so the idea was to have a different kind of more, more saga-esque feel about it. Um, and had it not had a different feel, there wouldn't be, you know, a lot of point doing it, in a sense. Mm, okay, just... But, you know, also, I, I'm, I'm keen to return to the adult stuff as well. I've been writing short stories in the adult world, and they are you know, brutal and, and unpleasant and uh, full of, of sex and, and piss jokes. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, all, all work and no play makes makes Jack a doll boy and likewise kind of all Joe filth and no lyrical uh, po- poetry makes Jack a doll boy as well. I think you've got to kind of have, you know, as many strings to your as possible and as mm. much variety as possible and uh, that just helps you to keep fresh and different and when you go back to your adult stuff, I think, you know, I will have learned a lot I'll take a lot back to the adult stuff uh, as a result of having done these books and, and you know, tried to really write as, as, as focused a way as I can and boiled things down to their most essential parts. Mm. I think, you know, that experience will help a lot going back to the adult work. Mm. And so you're normally known as a fantasy author, but I was actually really surprised to learn that The Shattered Sea sorry, actually has a drop of uh, science fiction in it. And uh, rumours had actually been floating around on the form since Half the World was released uh, about about mild science fiction elements. But I was actually generally surprised to know that The Shattered, Shattered Seas does actually take place in a post-apocalyptic world. And is there any reason why you decided to do this? Uh, add a hint of science fiction to your work? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it seemed like a different, you know, something slightly different to do. It seemed like it might give the world a bit of a different texture to what had been there before. Uh, a bit of a, a mystery to unravel during the course of it. Um, I suppose a, a big inspiration had been uh, some books by John Christopher called uh, yes. The Soul of the Spirits, a trilogy uh, that I read as a kid, you know, going back to the, the books that had a big impact on me growing up. Um so Rosemary Sutcliffe and Ursula Gwynn and John Christopher were the, were the kind of big pillars for me. And, and, you know, John Christopher wrote these three books that really lodged in my mind for years uh, about this, you know, this, this strange fantasy version of, of Britain that then you gradually realise is, in fact, you know, Earth after a nuclear war or some sort of apocalypse of some kind, mm. um, in which technology kind of survives and the technology has become seen as magic in a sense. And so... That, that kind of concept has always stuck with me and it seemed like a good possibility for this. I think maybe at the back of my mind, you know, I tried a, a totally invented secondary world as well and to just kind of do a new invented secondary world seemed like it might offer a little less than maybe doing, you know, a, a version of our world or a possible, you know, you're not really sure whether it's our world or not. Um, and I thought that perhaps, you know, there might be there might be readers who'd be turned off by a totally invented fantastical world but might be that little bit mm. softened by the possibility it might be our world in a way. Um, it just seemed like there could be some interesting things I could do around that. So that, that was really why. Um, but I wanted it to kind of drip through very gradually 
and, and be a sort of organic, natural part of the story and, and to focus on the characters and not kind of do big info dumps of, well, as you know, my leave 700 years ago, the uh, civilization was destroyed and, you know, I didn't want to do that. Mm. I wanted it to be, you know, natural and to be introduced very, very gradually to the reader over the course of all three books. So in the first book, you'd hardly know, I suppose. You know, there's this civilization of elves is mentioned and their mm. ruins are around, but it's very much a you know, a detail, an element of the setting, and then gradually it becomes more and more central to the story and is, of course, quite central in the in the third book or certainly important up to a point, anyway. In the finale, which I will not spoil since I value my life, it's definitely sure. very... Yeah, and you read it made it ambiguous for that reason because I wasn't actually sure when I first saw the rumour. I just thought, no, I highly doubt that it's... Uh, that it is a bit of science fiction post-apocalyptic, but when I started reading Half of War... I gradually just, uh, like, some hints, like the painting and the pills, uh, sorry, the beans, should we say, other things like that, it just, dro- uh, little drops of uh, hints, and it just gradually build builds up. It never explicitly states it. It's never, you're never 100% certain, even now I'm not 100% certain, from the raw material alone. And it's not like, shall we say, Morgan's uh, A Land Fit for Heroes, where it's explicitly clear. In this, it's... Uh, not very clear, uh, not very clear at all, and I think you did a, a very good job of it. And you have to consider some of the items that they would be using. Uh, people who hadn't experienced experienced that world will have absolutely no idea what to call them in our t- in in our terms. It'll be an absolute loss for words. And so, if you maintain that whole POV stance, I'd say ambiguity makes sense. Uh, yeah. do, do you think you'd ever return to the Shattered Seas world now that you finished with the trilogy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see no reason not to. I, I think um, I, I'm not really a writer who is massively... It's a strange thing for a fantasy writer to say, but I'm not, I'm not someone who's massively interested in fantasy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not massively interested in the, in the fantastical elements, in the kind of monsters and the magic and the... And mm. the you know, the, the things that separate fantasy from other kinds of writing. I think, you know, what I'm interested in and where my talents such as they are lie is is in the kind of characterization and the the plotting and the things that uh you know make any story work in a way so i don't think i'm someone who would dream up lots of extravagant worlds you know in order to make certain points i mean you know there's many many great sci-fi and fantasy books that that use a really strong strange setting to kind of place their characters under all kinds of pressures and and uh that's not particularly my bag. My settings tend to tend to be relatively recognisable, tend to be pretty Earth-like. Um, so I'm not someone to invent a lot of new settings just because I can, or, you know, a new setting for every book. Um, so I don't see any reason why I wouldn't go back to the Shattered Sea. I like that world a lot. It worked out very nicely. I mean, it was an interesting exercise being able to kind of come up with a new world for the purpose of a book, in a way, the first law of the world had kind of developed piecemeal over many, many years, all kinds of bits I've stolen from all over the place. And, you know, as I started writing those books, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. So a lot was improvised and just put together ad hoc without any thought for, you know, what it meant to the story and, and the world. Whereas the, the, the Shattered Sea world, I was able to, you know, produce more to order and to really think about the effects that the, the nature of the world would have on the story. So it's a world that I like a lot and I think worked very well. And, uh, yeah, I'd certainly go back to, to it. I mean, I think the story is very much... There's a complete story there. There's no need to go back to it. But, um, you know, uh, 
the, the shortness of the books is nice, I will admit. Um, I thought it would, would take a long time to write the short books, uh, and it didn't. It, it took, you know, eight months maybe for a book. So comparing that to 16 or 20 months for an adult book, uh, it is a project you can kind of slot in. It's a project you can you can kind of find time for in a way that finding time for an adult book is, is hard if it's going to take you 16 to 20 months. It's got to be your main, your only, your total focus of everything, really. So I can imagine certainly going back and writing more books. I mean, I think there's, there's more stories to be told. There's plenty to explore there. I don't feel like I'm totally done with it. Mm. Um, I'm not someone for kind of epoch-changing, world-ending battles anyway, because, you know, it's hard to imagine going back for a fourth Lord of the Rings because the world is so altered, you know, would it be Aragorn doing a lot of public events? You know? PR On the road, you know, invest- looking at Gondor, commissioning public buildings, that kind of thing. You know, the world's changed, the same stuff's not there. Uh, and that happens a lot in fantasy, whereas in the real world, obviously, we don't have world-ending, epoch-changing stuff. We tend to have, you know, wars that end and not a lot changes. Mm. And... The, the the seeds of the next conflict are there in the in the ends of the past one. So I think generally in my world you don't have the you know the world is in some way as much as it was before and so there's there's certainly always more stories to be explored. So no, I wouldn't rule it out at all. No, no immediate plans right now, but I mean there's certainly a couple of particular threads that I think uh, are definitely left left hanging to a degree and, and that could easily be picked up. Mm. I would I'd be interested to pick up in the future but certainly back to adult stuff for the time being anyway yeah and like a story like uh, Tough Times All Over felt very self-contained but it still took us back to Familiar City and I'd I'd definitely read anything that was in the uh, Shattered Seas trilogy there's quite a number of cities I'd like that we didn't really get time to see because again it was so fast paced and you wrote it very quickly I actually remember when you were coming down to Sydney in February you hadn't actually finished Half a War yet I I believe and that was only a few months ago I was wrestling with the edit. It was oh, okay. quite a tough edit on Half the War. Yeah. Half the World everyone loved straight away. And uh, I was shocked and amazed and delighted because there were negligible comments. It was like a two-day edit. And, uh, <laughs> and then, so I was expecting the same thing for Half the War and that was not what I got. I got uh, I got sizable, sizable and substantial comments to deal with. And, you know, they were totally right. I mean, it's funny how you, you finish a book and you always have this strange sense of, Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not very confident in this, I don't like it. And as soon as someone says, this is brilliant, you kind of go, yeah, I knew that. This is fantastic. So whereas with, with Half Always kind of the opposite, I was thinking, oh, this is great. And then they said, you know, not so great. Mm. And uh, it was really just in need of a massive amount of tightening up, which is really surprising. It was it was 10,000 words longer than uh, Half the World when I had mm. it in. And it ended up shorter, a couple of thousand words shorter. It's just a lot of cutting to do. Lol. Cutting is the uh, the writer's most powerful tool, you know, and uh, it massively improved the book. It was just a lot of redundancy, a lot of a lot of it's slightly slightly lazy, slightly, if if I'm honest. Mm. Uh, so it was good. My editors were there to kind of pull me up on that. Yeah, a lot of it's meat anyway. Like there's very very little downtime, if any at all. It lulled into a uh, false sense of security with half a world, I suppose. You needed to get the um, the axe out, start hacking away at your darlings just shearing it away. And at the end, almost always it turns out for the best and you've got in pretty incredible work here for, again, as I've read and it's, well, thank you. yeah, definitely really, I was blown away by it. 
And for one, one of the last questions is, what's the most ridiculous fan response or criticism that you've had towards your work, other than the, the whole thing with requires hate, of course? The whole thing with what, sorry? Requires hate. Other than that, what's the most ridiculous oh. response you've had? Oh, I've had some brilliant ones, uh, yeah, at, at different times. Um, uh, there was a great article on, on Breitbart about how... Uh, yes, I've, how, yeah. Uh, Fantasy was being destroyed by modern the the, the the noble heroic legacy of Tolkien and Howard was being dragged into the sewer by modern writers and that was fantastic uh, and did I think I've never had more people expressing an interest in my work than mm. I have had in the wake of that article. I had a great uh, person. I had a great email uh, not long ago by someone who, who told me that. Uh, he was really enjoying the heroes uh, so much that he had to burn it. Um, because uh, he'd become concerned that, that uh, it might corrupt him. And worse still, that other members of his prayer group might accidentally stumble upon it and they might be corrupted by it. Oh dear. And so he had felt the need to destroy it. And he wanted me to know that uh, he signed off by saying, I'd like you to know that there are still people in the world who will not tolerate blatant sin. So that was interesting. Very interesting. A good book burning is always, you know... It always makes an impact, doesn't it? It makes an impression. Yeah. What's the great thing about book things is you've got to pay for the books first. Mm. So I'm kind of a fan of it, really. If uh, anyone feels moved to to you know go to the warehouse and burn a few thousand of books, yeah, then I'm, that's kind of good. As long as you pay for them first. Fans lining fans lining in the street just hauling massive first all the first law books and just shoving them in a, a towering inferno. It'd be perfectly fine any as long as they go out and buy it. Any kind of vigorous, intense complaint about anything is just the best publicity you can ever have. This mm. is this is the the amazing thing. I mean, there's never been a kind of campaign against a, a particular bit of art, bit of writing, that hasn't made it massively more popular and widely read. And people still have not learned that con- controversy sells and that pub- no, any publicity, like, not. I cannot understand. You get people complaining about how offensive or wrong or morally corrupting something is, and then people go out in droves and buy it. That's how I first actually got introduced to the blade itself. I wrote, saw someone complaining about how bad and how offensive it was. It was this, it was that, it was stereotypical, blah, etc. Yada, yada, yada. I went out that very day and bought it and became a lifelong fan. So if whoever's, if whoever wrote that review is listening, thank you so much. I cannot <laughs> thank you enough. But uh, yeah, anyway, we've run out of we've run out of time. We've actually gone overboard by almost double, yeah. but that doesn't not matter. Here. Yeah, not no. a, not at all. Well, thank you, Joe Abercrombie. Thank you so so much for coming onto the show. It was an absolute pleasure to have you to have you on board, and we'll try to definitely have you on board again, be it an interview or possibly a story or maybe even a panel. We actually, we've actually uh, run panels in the past, so it'd be fantastic if you could join us again one day. Yeah, yeah. Let no, me know. Look yeah. forward to it. Yeah, no. So, Half of War comes out from on uh, July twenty third from Harper Voyager, and the first Law trilogy and the other books are from Galant slash Orbit. Joe, thank you so much for coming to uh, talking us at Starship Server here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. There you go. Jeremy, thank you so much, and Joe, nice, nice of you to take the time out to come on Starship Sova. So that is it, three hundred and ninety-six. Put to bed. 
I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been far, but like I say, we've had a couple of weeks off, but we're now back in the swing of things, gearing up for more shows. And just to give you a kind of heads up, big thank you if you were kind of kind enough to kind of step up to the mark and help out Tales to Terrify as well. You know what I mean? It's been a bit of a kind of rocky road. And we're kind of, we're, we're sort of like through the cloud, you know what I mean? We can always do two and more, but it looks like it's, it's going to, you know, keep on going and... Fingers crossed, everything will work out that for them over there. Tales to terrify. So, like you see, if you stepped up the mark and donated a big, big, honestly, man, I could come over there and have a cup of tea with you and tell, tell him he was. Thank you so much. So, like I say, that's it. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Stories of Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.